Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm George Blumenthal. I'm the chancellor of this place, um, but I think many, many, if not all of you know me. Um, but I want, I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. This is the third year that the Division of Social Sciences is presenting its distinct, Distinguished Alumni Award. And I'd like to particularly extend my congratulations to tonight's honored guest and award recipient, uh, Joe Burney. Joe, you join a very distinguished group of former win winners, even though there's only two of them, in Dana Priest and Judge Kelvin Filer. Um, most of you know that the first Distinguished Alumni Award went to uh, Dana Priest, um, who is a Washington Post reporter. Uh, Dana um, won, had won the uh, Pulitzer Prize in an earlier venue. She's one of five graduates of UCSC who's won uh, Pulitzer Prizes. And last year, she, uh, I'm sorry, just a week ago, she proved that you can repeat it, and she won her second Pulitzer Prize. And she won it for her reporting in the Washington Post on the horrendous conditions at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. So it's really impressive that we have a, a graduate who's won now two Pulitzer Prizes. And as we were several of us were talking earlier, she's still relatively young. So it's kind of awesome to think of how many she can accumulate over a career. But her work on uh, her story on the Walter Reed uh, treatment of uh, uh, wounded veterans and how bad it was really, I think, was an important story because it, 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 it helped revise the way that our Army hospitals work. And it was a prime example of how reporting can really affect social change. And so I think that it was an extremely important piece of work. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I don't want to steal Joe's thunder, but uh, many of our social science graduates at this university do things that change people's lives. Uh, uh, judge Filer is another example uh, as, a, as a Superior Court judge, and I actually met him for the first time uh, in Southern California about a week and a half ago when I had a chancellor's reception for new, newly admitted students. Uh, uh, he was the uh, speaker, the alumni speaker that we invited, and he gave an absolutely wonderful speech to those students and, and showed his enthusiasm for UC Santa Cruz. Um, Joe is a graduate of both the economics and education department at UCSC, and his career in service, education, policy and practice have consistently brought honor to us as an institution, and in particular to this Division of Social Sciences. I want to just remind you that the Social Sciences Division here at UC Santa Cruz is a key part of the interdisciplinary curriculum that we're so proud of. Um, the Social Sciences Division has a long and distinguished history on our campus. In fact, in a recent study, um, the Social Sciences Division was ranked first in the nation in term, among public universities for the quality of its research. I mean, that's impressive, first in the nation. Uh, the Social Sciences Division here is also the largest of our academic divisions. There are nine departments and six research centers within the Social Sciences Division. Um, you have more than 35 undergraduate and graduate degree programs as well. Uh, in fact, 
social sciences here awards almost half of all bachelor's degrees on this campus. I think it's 48% of all BA degrees come from the social sciences division. So the workload is impressive. And in fact, nearly a third of the graduate students on this campus are within the social sciences division. Another interesting uh, piece of information that, that I've often commented on is that if you combine the social sciences division here with the humanities division, they have the highest percentage of graduates who go on to get doctoral degrees in the UC system, higher than Berkeley, higher than UCLA, higher than any other campus. And that also shows that the um, culture of research, the culture of preparing students to go on to higher to even higher education is, is, an, is a culture that permeates the division. It's something that you should be extremely proud of. Um, social science faculty are really tackling some of the most interesting questions of the 21st century, issues of racism, environmental degradation, economic inequality, and education reform, just to name a few. Today, the focus of social sciences has much to do with the study of human relationships and society, and it's more important than ever. Leading this effort is the Dean of Social Sciences, Sheldon Kamenecki, and it's my pleasure to introduce him uh, this evening. Sheldon came to UC Santa Cruz in 2006 after 25 years as a faculty member at the University of Southern California, USC. At USC, he directed the Urban Institute. He served as the chair of the Political Sciences Department, and he was the founding director of the Environmental Studies Program at USC. He specializes in environmental policy, elections, voting behavior, and public opinion. He's the author of numerous articles, book chapters, and books. His latest is entitled, Corporate America and Environmental Policy, How Often Does Business Get Its Way? Please join me in welcoming Dean Sheldon Kamenecki. Boy, I didn't, I, I didn't realize the social sciences was so huge. And, and boy, I'm, I might just ask for another salary increase, George, given all the work I've been doing here. He didn't hear me. I'm glad probably shouldn't. Um, anyway, thank you all for coming on this terrific occasion uh, to honor one of our distinguished uh, and very successful uh, alumni, uh, Joe Burney. And I certainly want to thank um, George Blumenthal, who is extremely busy these days. We were, in, in fact, just talking about that. And he's been up into the wee hours of the night working on various things that are very important to the campus. And we all appreciate that. And there are things that he, he can't really talk about. And uh, it's, 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 it's unfortunate. But uh, he, he really has been working the, throughout the whole year extremely hard and it's been very challenging I know and we all I just want to let you know we all appreciate it and uh, we all hope it comes out um, well uh, and I also want to thank all of you for for being here uh, to help us honor and acknowledge uh, Joseph C. Burney um, also known as Joe uh, to his friends um, who's receiving this year's prestigious honor the 2008 uh, Distingu Distinguished Social Sciences Alumni Award from the Division of Social Sciences at the University of California, uh, Santa Cruz. Congratulations. Uh, 
This award was created to celebrate, to celebrate uh, graduates who bring enduring honor to UC Santa Cruz uh, by sustained and exemplary achievement uh, through research, practice, education, policy, service, and overall contributions to the community, both locally and worldwide. And this is something that Joe has certainly done in his career. Um, and I'd like to read briefly um, what the plaque says that we will be uh, presenting to him in a, in a second. And it says, UC Santa Cruz Distinguished Social Sciences Alumni Award 2008 presented to Joseph C. Burney, Cowell 1975, Economics and Secondary Education Teaching Credential. With this award, the Division of Social Sciences celebrates graduates who bring enduring honor to UC Santa Cruz by sustained and exemplary achievement through research practice, education, policy, or service. And so we honor Joe um, today for, for that. I especially want to also thank the, uh, the selection committee for identifying uh, Joe. Uh, they had to go through numerous nominations um, and uh, they, um, they met and um, uh, discussed at great length and had quite a lot of reading to do uh, in terms of sorting through the nominations. As you can see from the previous recipients, uh, it's a very, very competitive field. We have graduated a lot of uh, students from the social sciences, and many of them have been nominated and will continue to be nominated. And um, some of the members are here today, if not all of them. And if you could just wave a little, uh, David Brundage, I saw David before, and um, Bernard Gold Golden, thank you, and Mary Grineland, great, uh, Quentin Hancock, terrific, uh, Val uh, Valencia Herrera, Valencia make it, uh, Lauren Malone, and uh, Vanita Seth were also on the committee. Um, as George Blumenthal mentioned, uh, Joe stands with uh, two awardees now who have come before us, um, Compton County Superior Court Judge Kelvin uh, D. Filer, uh, who received the award last year in 2007, and of course, as um, George Blumenthal mentioned, um, uh, Dana Priest in 2006, who has just won her second Pulitzer Prize. So these are all good things happen to these recipients, so uh, uh, maybe, certainly that will, that will happen to you. So Joe, if you can come up, I will uh, present you with the plaque. He can't wait to speak. Um, but before he does, let me introduce him more properly. Uh, Joe has prepared a uh, presentation entitled uh, Bringing Education into the 21st Century. Stop Education from Trying to Get People to Fit into Society and Start to Get People to Change It. Interesting title. Um, but before turning over the podium to him, let me, let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Joe Burney is an innovative um, educator uh, and social justice advocate who, in the words of Professor Emeritus of Education Arthur Pearl, who was his major and main um, uh, nominator, actively embodies and exemplifies hope and accomplishment for self, community, and society which is just some of the reason Joe was selected the winner of 
uh, this year's Alumni Award from the Division of Social Sciences. Among other accomplishments, including graduating from UCSC's Cal College in 1975 with a BA in economics and a secondary teaching credential, uh, Credential. Joe has taught high school, helped design California first statewide dropout prevention policy, expanded opportunities for incarcerated youth, served as an assistant director of the Community Services Administration during uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency, launched California's first agricultural training center in Watsonville with the Teamsters, uh, local and regional and local fruit and vegetable processors, and led a grassroots labor management organization in Watsonville that lobbied for county of origin labeling requirements for agricultural products. He now resides in Oregon, uh, Eugene. Uh, after moving to Oregon, Joe initiated a networking for youth community collaborative um, and he serves as an elected uh, board member of the County Office of Education in Lane County. Uh, he advocates for greater funding of anti-poverty uh, programs and is currently working to increase investment in renewable and alternative energy sources uh, for the poor. That's a lot of, do you ever sleep? That's a lot of work. <laughs> so without further ado, um, I give you Joe Bernie. Thank you. I just want to mention this event is being videotaped for replay on community television of Santa Cruz County, channels 25, 26, and 27 on the Comcast cable system, and channels 71, 72, and 73 on charter communications. So, Joe, please. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I am not now, nor will I ever seek a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> um, you know, it really sucks getting old. I, I typed this in 24 print. I still need my glasses. <laughs> Members of the UC Santa Cruz Social Science Alumni Committee, um, Chancellor, Dean Komenak, and Art Pearl, who nominated me and can't be here, thank you very much. This is great. Thank you. Um, by the way, I took Art to lunch after this occurred. I didn't know it was occurring. I don't know if some of you know him. Uh, he looked, he's 85. He looked up at me through his horn-rimmed glasses after ranting about this or that. And he just said, Joe, do you know anybody that knows as much as I do? <laughs> yeah, I'll see you know him. And, of course, I said, nope, I don't. <laughs> this award confirms what I've told my son and suspected was true. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> I am so, seriously, I'm so grateful for the adventure of my life, the dreams that I've been blessed to live, even the obstacles that I've been fortunate enough to live through. One such example... I've had insulin-dependent di insulin diabetes since the age of 10 years old, 45 years, uh, and as a result, it's taken me 50,000 injections of insulin to be with you tonight, <laughs> uh, which also explains why I have done a lot. When you don't think you have a long time to live, you kind of want to do as much as you can, and after a while, it just becomes a habit. Um, I was given a 0% chance to live into my early 30s, 
and now by virtue of the fact that I've outlasted almost everyone that knew me at the time I was a student here in the 70s, I'm eligible for this award. (laughs) I have been asked to share a bit about my life, the role UC Santa Cruz played, and my passion. The passion part will revolve around mentors, inspiration, and change. The change part will be applied to a couple of areas, notably public education, where my heart still is, even though uh, I'm not actively engaged as an educator officially anymore. Um, Now, how do we start the PowerPoint? My PowerPoint assistant, Andrea. (laughs) I'm going to keep on going on, and if... where is, you know what, I also don't have the little remote dealy bob. Oh, here it is. So once it gets started, oh, thank you. <laughs> this to me, and I'll get into it in a bit, really exemplifies for the, con- the context of everything I have to ch- say and everything I hope UCSC is all about as it was when I was fortunate enough to be here. Because right now, Everything seems to be organized around getting people to accommodate and fit in, and very little has to do with the analysis and the action orientation of changing. Um, I have, uh, I, I, oh, this thing, let's see what happens here. Once we get this down, what do you think? Yeah, the down button. He moved me out of Santa Cruz. Um, I'm not going to, oh, no, okay. No. I'm not going to, you know what, if you don't mind, I'm not going to be limited to a PowerPoint if we can't get the technology down. One of the first, um, I remember a magical week. I'm just going to get started if that's okay. And we, I remember a magical week in the summer of 1976 where I had an amazing opportunity. I lived on the island of Bali. It was a summer in between teaching. I lived on the island of Bali in Indonesia. I I lived with and learned from a lady named Margaret Mead. My aunt at the time was her photographer. She was then then going to a Pacific Asian scientists convention. First time she had been to Bali in 30 years since her and her then-husband Gregory Bateson did their field research for the book Coming of Age in Samoa. And I don't remember how many times she would amplify this quote of hers. We know the quote, and it's really important. Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. What I saw in Bali with her is difficult to reconcile a quote I read in the last UCSC alumni magazine. The quote went like this. Asia is achieving a level of wealth where the environment is coming to the forefront. Asia is ripe for a green revolution. Let me just share. In 1976, Asia did not need a green revolution. There was no employment. It was an agrarian economy. There was virtually no pollution, and all the products grown were being grown for local consumption, not requiring oil to transport them all around the country. Oil companies were just beginning to move in. The economy of Bali was just beginning to change. They were experiencing their first glimpses of unemployment. 
the United Nations Development Program was beginning an ambitious project to pave roads which forever have changed that society. And when I think of the Eden Bali once was and contemplate what happened and think of change, I swear to you it makes my heart ache and it suggests that change isn't the issue, the direction of change is the issue. A quick word about Art Pearl. Art Pearl nominated me. Um, Art Pearl inspired a philosophy 36 years ago at the, te at the uh, Office of Education here at UC Santa Cruz, which... <laughs> which had a, a basic philosophy that teachers should be agents of change. This meant knowing the job inside and out of teaching because if you didn't know what you were doing, you had no credibility to start advancing proposals to improve things. It was a proposal based on study, rigorous analysis, field study, and structured reflection, not heavily methodology oriented. Uh, it gave us students uh, real-world opportunities to practice the crafts we were learning as well as learn the craft of social change, of building constituencies, communicating to and engaging diverse groups of people, expanding circles of engagement, developing credibility. It was a program that gave us a challenge to offer those all-important intangible gratifications that basically will compete uh, with socially and personally destructive things like gang abuse, dropping out of school, uh, drug abuse, gang participation. And those gratifications were obtained through an exciting classroom environment in which these kinds of things, a sense of security and comfort being there, a sense of meaning and purpose, that there was a reason to be there, and by being there, in fact, you could do more of what you wanted to do. A sense of competence and usefulness. In fact, all students have strengths. And in a rigorous standardized curriculum, hopefully they fit in, because if they don't, they're SOL. Hope and excitement. Hope that tomorrow, in fact, as a result of hard work, will be a better place than today. And excitement, because it's just exciting when you get the sense that you really can accomplish this. Uh, and we were talking about that in June Gordon's class this afternoon. These are fundamental aspects these are fundamental aspects of what Art and I call the democratic classroom. And, let's see, and I encourage you to uh, check out a website we started. It's www.educationtosavetheworld.org. It'll be on one of these slides. And log in and let us know that you got there and what you think. As a student teacher through this institution, I began a research project with a civics class at Soquel High School. This is a long time ago. <laughs> I, it turned into a student movement of sorts. It was led by thoroughly disenfranchised students. They were well on their way to dropping out. They loudly claimed their rights were being violated. I challenged them to prove it. I challenged them, show me where in the Constitution your darn rights are being violated. And they did and they really truly became constitutional scholars. We brought in community people, including the narc on campus who didn't realize that all the students knew who he was in the first place. 
We talked to them, we interviewed them, we communicated with and solicited input from every student in the school. We compiled, they compiled a list of grievances, negotiated a proposal, planned and held a school-wide uh, assembly to the ver reverberations on their stereo system of Dylan singing the times they are a-changin'. The process evolved, students district-wide organized, they ultimately made a proposal to the Santa Cruz City School District, the pro proposal was accepted, it became school board policy, and these kids experienced what too many don't. They experienced real learning and active democratic citizenship and learning that they could. And what happened to me after being so daring? Well, besides the fact that all but three stayed in school, because of some great mentors, I learned to teach. And as a result, when I applied for the one open social studies teaching job at Soquel High School in 1975, along with 40 other people, I was the lucky one selected. So don't tell me that if you pursue ideals pragmatically and realistically, you can't get in the system to do further work. And I need you to, I want you to know, I am absolutely delighted that one of my early mentors and friends, who was back then the chair of the social studies department at Soquel High School, George Smith, and another dear friend whose husband was also on that selection committee, Janet Blumquist, are here with us today. George, Janet. And, <laughs> don't make me cry. <laughs> and I thank you both so much for being there for me 32 years ago and this evening. Thank you. You know, relationships, human relationships like these are so important and life-changing. Hey, that worked. <laughs> there will be no relationship between the slides and what I say, but hopefully they'll both be a bit interesting. The relationships there are so important and life-changing. When I was an undergraduate here at this place, I had access to and was mentored by some exciting, inspirational professors. That opportunity occurred because this university's commitment back then to allow undergraduates direct access to these great minds who usually don't have time for us um, through small seminars and time to develop one-on-one -on -one relationships with faculty is as huge for us as what we learned. To this day, I remember and feel the influence of professors like Paige Smith, who was one of the founding fathers, I believe, of this institution, a guy named Bill Domhoff, and his entertaining and insightful analysis of power structure. Dan Suits, an amazing Keynesian economist who almost made it believable. Just kidding. <laughs> Doug Dowd, an equally amazing Marxist economist who almost made it believable. Art Pearl, who cannot be categorized, and many others. Having this opportunity to connect to engage, to develop substantive relationships, to be inspired by these people is precisely what is systematically being taken away from public school classroom teachers today. This is going to be an emerging theme. <laughs> so access then and access now is huge. Access defines opportunity. Too often personal wealth defines class which defines access, which defines opportunity, especially in the world we have created since I was an undergraduate here. 
a world, just a bit of a soapbox here, a world where our very own government has abandoned democracy and largely abandoned the Constitution, where our representatives have presided over not just a sinful and horatious waste of resources and human life in Iraq, but away from the headlines, what's not being talked about is that we now maintain and pay for over 700 military bases in 130 countries across the world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is my moment. I will. <laughs> and no one even discusses this. A world where public policy has ensured the erosion of public support for public education. A world where, since I was an undergraduate, our government has not only watched over but insisted on the literal destruction or assisted the literal destruction of the environment and the destruction of the middle class. No matter how wonderful alumni, including my work, may be or may have been. A world in which the underlying goal of the global economy, like it or not, elusive as it is, is infinite production at zero cost. I learned this when I owned a broccoli processing plant with four other guys in Watsonville. We were paying more per day for workers' comp than the entire labor cost if those same factories were in Mexico. There was a big strike here in the mid-80s, I don't know if you recall. A world where the global crises I studied here 35 years ago at UC Santa Cruz, war, racism, poverty, environmental destruction, and, and the fifth one, people's apathy towards government are worse. They're exponentially worse. One of my current projects, let's see how this works. Well, we talked about that. One of my current projects is called Lisa. Lisa's the name of the first woman that dumped me, but Lisa, <laughs> because I had diabetes, and her father was chief stomach surgeon at UCLA Medical School, and he convinced her this was, this was not a horse you wanted to bet on. Um, LISA stands for Low Income Solar Accessibility. It is basically leveraging community action agencies across this country, and tri or across Oregon, excuse me, where I live, and tribal government infrastructure to begin to diversify the green movement. Positioning things so it does not leave behind the growing ranks of the poor and historically excluded. In Oregon, 40% of all low-income ratepayers, which are you and I, those of us that are poor and experience a huge burden with energy costs, 40% um, of all ratepayers are poor. In Oregon, by the way, 50% of all the kids in K-12 public schools are eligible for free and reduced lunches. I mean, how do you say that and not get infuriated? It's just not right. So providing Beginning to the purpose of this project is to be consistent with policy priorities and begin to f provide a framework for, for access to renewable resources for a group of people who financially need to get off the grid as much as our society does environmentally. Um, this is a slide I used when when I was talking about this and convincing, persuading a $70 million annual budget agency in Oregon, the Energy Trust of Oregon, they needed to invest in poor people. And what it basically shows you is uh, average income for the United's household income for the United States, Oregon, 
60% of state median income, the number of $18,000 for federal poverty guideline, and the average income for a family in Oregon that receives once a year three to $500 energy assistance payments from the federal government. I had to persuade the Energy Trust of Oregon of their institutional self-interest in investing in these people, not, and this, is a, this happens, not because it's the right thing to do, but because of the institutional cost benefits that could accrue to the agency. But um, I'm, I'm going to skip around now because I've done a lot of things, and until I wrap it up, you're going to think it's random, but it's not. <laughs> I previously talked about the uniqueness and value here of student-faculty relationships, mentoring relationships, really, that went on with professors. I had the opportunity to work in the early and middle 1990s with the Pew Charitable Trusts. The Pew Charitable Trusts and other major national foundations had been going through generations of giving to social service projects. Their projects were very successful, but the cities in which those projects worked were getting worse in whatever the area happened to be. Gangs, homelessness, violence, you name it, whatever it was. And so Pew... Uh, led several foundations in a rigorous self-analysis. They wanted to change that. And the work with them illustrates the, the kind of, of significance mentoring has um, and had with us as undergraduates. Now, my mentoring project had a different philosophy, I hope, than any you've heard of. It started with a premise that over 80, with the fact that over 85% of the first jobs and work experiences young people get in this country, I believe in education, but no matter the education they've received, is through sponsorship. It's through knowing someone. It's through an adult, no matter who it was, family, teaching profession, church, co whoever, that cared enough to open a door and connect a kid to an opportunity. By the way, I believe, at least when I was an undergraduate here, the same phenomenon held true. If I didn't have the professors I shared with you, I would not have graduated. And professionally, it tends to hold true as well. Now, we wanted to take that concept and generate as many mentors to different businesses and institutions in the Eugene Springfield area as possible and develop human connections. They didn't have to agree with my social analysis. I didn't even advance it. But we were developing one-on-one -on -one relationships between people who were working and young people in the school system. And once we made those relationships, we had what Art Pearl, a World War II phrase used to call, beachheads. We had points from which to develop and expand those relationships and develop credibility and do the practice of democracy that I shared with you my students did when I, my first year of teaching. Which means mentors came from area chambers of commerce. Let's see if we got it here. No, I don't think so. No. Well, we can't go backwards, can we? we? Oh, you got it. Thank you. They came from area chambers of commerce, different unions through the Lane County Labor Council, the Eugene Springfield NAACP, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the Lane County Home Builders Association, service clubs, arts councils, churches, trade and technical organizations. You name it, we snagged them. And by snagging them,
All of them developed their own mentor programs. Many developed or, or redirected grant programs for mentoring. Over 200 jobs were literally created for disconnected youth in this area. And an additional $4.7 million was attracted to the area because we could demonstrate to funders their money was going to make a difference. This is what many national foundations now, and it relates to our lunch conversation a bit, call civic change. Mobilizing resources, applying them to an issue in non-traditional ways, creating relationships and alliances with people and organizations who traditional, traditionally don't speak with one another, much less work together, so that trust is developed and communities can work better. Ironically, something that, uh, that kind of relates to this definition of civic change was a striking failure yours truly had at UC Santa Cruz. I tried to argue and unsuccessfully persuade that to receive a bachelor's degree here, students at UCSC ought to demonstrate proficiency in their field to the benefit of some segment of the local community, be it gang prevention, economic development, projects serving needy populations, school improvement, mentoring, development of proposals and funding for research parks and future technology applications. And I really, truly believe 32 years later with the experience of this Pew Partnership for Civic Change behind me, that it would have back then, or could even now, create an explosion of what several national foundations believe this country needs. New alliances developing relationships of greater trust, setting the stage for university co community collaborations, which I honestly believe are currently unimaginable. Another of my proposals, which bit the dust here, <laughs> was uh, I wanted to create my own major. You could do that then. I don't know if you can still do it. How long? You still can. I figured I'd take the intro courses to all the social science disciplines and major in life. It didn't fly. And oddly enough, even though it's probably good that that very earnest folly of youth was precluded, now I'm getting awarded for it. <laughs> so, so very quickly, I'll just, and I'm not going to harp on this at all, but what the selection committee, and I'm so, I'm honored. I, I, I was telling the chancellor, I feel humbled in the community that you have placed me in. But um, I taught at Soquel High School. I've supervised education field placements here for a couple of years. Was involved in a project Art Pearl directed. Um, things have a way of coming around. This was the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, National Institute of Education, hugely funded school violence and vandalism project. We came in at the tail end of that to determine what the heck these people were doing in areas where the indices of mugging, looting, murder, bad stuff were happening in and around school environments. I was one of a group of young Turks that were going to go out there and make it happen. And the area I was sent to for four months was East St. Louis and South Chicago. And when I was in South Chicago interviewing the principal of Harrison High School, we were 20 minutes into the interview, and a guy got shot 
and sent to the hospital 50 feet from where we were occurring, the, where we were having the interview. Um, Low-income housing. I was fortunate enough to work for a man who I met at UC Santa Cruz um, in Washington, D.C., uh, developing low and moderate income housing in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. And I told him I'd do it, but he had to allow, give me 5% of the profits that those developments were accruing for the development company and let me give that to the tenants, some were elderly, some low-income families, and allow them to manage their own service companies. And because fluke, you know, in terms of, you know, why I skipped around so much. A fluke. Um, young man, D.C., friends were working at HUD, and they were developing thought pieces on how to develop tenant-owned management companies. So that facilitated involvement with the Community Services Administration, working with 42 different community development corporations at the time in ghettos, barrios, and reservations across the country. The list goes on, sorry. <laughs> um, when I came back here through, through luck, uh, I ended up working for a large statewide nonprofit in California called the Industry, Industry Education Council of California. At the time, um, we also developed when Frank Cooper was the superintendent of the County Office of Ed and Lionel Stoloff, names you probably don't know, was the head of the area Chamber of Commerce. Um, and Dale Kinsley, who used to teach here, was the superintendent of the Santa Cruz City School District. Anyway, uh, we developed a Santa Cruz County Industry Ed Council, too. I can talk about this stuff, but I want to really go through it. When I was the president of this Industry Ed Council of California, uh, we created with Shirley Thornton, who's still around, who was the, called herself the token black. She was the assistant superintendent of the California Department of Education when Honig was superintendent in the 80s. Uh, and another guy, Peter Mijas, we actually created, I got the honor of working with them, toward a dropout prevention policy that actually was organized around the analysis of gratifications that I learned here through Dr. Pearl at UC Santa Cruz. While in that position, uh, I kind of learned how to make deals. It was kind of fun, kind of heady. So uh, I, I was involved in developing. Now, this couldn't occur now. Now, if you buy an appliance from Sears and you need to coordinate delivery, you talk to India. I mean, this couldn't happen now. But then, with TWA, with unions, who this ostensibly would be taking jobs away from, we and the California Youth Authority, we created a system where incarcerated youth would answer overflow reservation calls from people all across the country that were making airline reservations. And they didn't know they were talking to some locked up kid. Those, those kids were trained, they were motivated, they were excellent, they learned the software system of TWA, and, we, and they were paid. And when they were paid, a third of the money went to offset their incarceration costs, a third of the money went to a victim's fund, and a third of the money went into a forced savings account. So when they were let out, they didn't repeat mistakes of their past because they had nothing, and they went back to what they knew how to do. In this area, uh, a training consulting business, we generated over $10 million of, of contracts, predominantly with labor organizations, mainly the California building trades and the Teamsters. 
Migrant Farm Worker Training Center, very proud of that. We actually set up here for migrant farm workers a training center. The local, Teamsters Local 912 actually developed a hiring hall. Long story short, instead of going from place to place as spring pack ended or as summer pack ended or as fall pack ended, these people were through a hiring hall, sent to different employers, kept working, didn't have to move for the first time in their history, got health benef care benefits, didn't take problems with them for place. It was a wonderful thing. Um, thanks and country of origin labeling for those of you that live here. You can still see on Martinelli apple juice products the silhouette of a guy on a tractor probably don't know what it means, but back then it was a homegrown effort called Thanks, together helping Americans nationwide keep strong. You know, again, these guys didn't necessarily have to agree with my political philosophy. We worked together. Uh, and as a result of lobbyists the Teamsters had who were part of this, the Teamsters were able, under our direction, to procure back then country of origin labeling for all agricultural products in this country. Our assumption was incorrect. We thought if people knew where something was grown and the job impacts of that, it would alter their consumption behavior. We were wrong. Workforce and education demonstrations with Pew Charitable Trust talked about that. Holistic Low Income Energy Assistance Demonstration Project. I don't want to bore you, but did that. Um, actually got the Attorney General of Oregon instead of, I don't know what happens in California, but instead of for the energy overcharge, the Enron kinds of settle, class action settlements that states received, um, Oregon was just going to send them out like six to ten bucks a person who was a rate payer in the state, and we persuaded and redirected that money to be, go to targeted low-income energy assistance programs. And finally, what I'm doing now, which I've already talked to you about. So it's been a ride. <laughs> but I would like to talk about what my heart is, where my heart is, which is public education. I would like to say that I've been told, especially in getting this award, that I've had a renaissance career. And I would like to share with you that that's nice, but my perspective is I've made the best out of my basic lack of long-term employability. <laughs> so to the few undergraduates that are in the audience, my message is simple. Yes, I really am that old. <laughs> but, I've been, but in terms of education, and if I offend any of you, I apologize. I really, and we have to understand, our democracy is no stronger than our least educated citizen. And I really do believe it's time to fundamentally change direction. Our schools are preparing students for jobs that don't exist. For universities, many of them will not attend, and for meaningless tests. Students are smart, they know this, and respond by dropping out, turn, tuning out, sliding by, or gaming the system. No, I, I don't, no child left behind. I'm tired of educators arguing it. The fact is, it's a wrong-headed and failed policy. It has heightened and helped a pre-existing failed direction in education. In the name of academic achievement, it creates obstacles to teaching and learning. 
It is a policy that alienates students and demoralizes teachers. And my significant other is one. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It is a policy that is coercive and unpersuasive. It is a policy that reduces teachers to the level, the role of low-level political functionaries, and it is a formula for mediocrity. We know that the most successful dynamic schools develop and own their own goals and objectives. They have the freedom to experiment, to include students and teachers in curriculum and policy decisions. They connect with community mentors, businesses, organizations, and engage in community development projects. And tragically, this is not something that the system encourages. In fact, there's precious little time for it. And I apologize if this is heresy even at this institution, but the notion that certified teachers or credentialed teachers are better at teaching than non-credentialed teachers needs to be questioned as do all systems of excluding people. The notion that imposing education standards from above somehow, wait a minute, oh, hey, it's happening magically. The notion that imposing education standards from above somehow prepares our youth for a future workplace needs to be challenged. And while I think that public public schools potentially represent the greatest human resource development agency in every community. And I believe that the development of our human resource base needs to connect with where the demand skills for future employment is. I also believe that economists don't know what those skills are for tomorrow. I honestly believe that corporate leaders don't really know what those skills are for future employment. We are in uncharted waters. Did you know that one out of every 100 American workers works for Walmart? 1% of the American workforce, 1.5 million people, work for Walmart. No one knows what the future is going to look like, but we do know that our children will live in it and will need to be equipped to make it far better than we have. Not only that, but really, what about access? In Oregon, the entire system is organized to prepare students for college. The statistical abstract says that 60% of those students will need a college education for employment. So if this quest for higher standards were to actually succeed and all K-12 students met it, where will these successful students go? Public support for higher education has eroded. The loss of public support translates into higher tuition and the privatization, whether we like it or not, of higher education. That's an obstacle to learning for people that can't afford it. While Pell Grants and other forms of financial assistance lag behind, you can't blame the colleges and universities. They absolutely have to survive and do whatever it takes for all of our sakes. We've seen support for prison grows in a way that could never have been predicted when I was an undergraduate here. In Oregon, in 1980, 8% of the state budget went to higher education. Now, the demand for higher education has skyrocketed and 6% of the state budget goes to higher education. In truth, 
No child left is left behind. Each eventually gets the right to vote. It is our school's responsibility to ensure that graduates can do that. The primary goal of public education, citizenship, government, civics. I love this quote from James Madison. He, this is a long time ago. James Madison, 1700s. A popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance, and a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives. That is precisely the knowledge that is currently discouraged. Only a highly educated citizenry can do the research, which is being done here, necessary for solutions to war, environmental devastation, poverty, and the racial divide. Much less issues students encounter daily. Drug abuse, violence, unwanted pregnancies, bullies, boring classes, racial antagonisms, gender oppression, etc., etc. Current education policy... Oh, well, that's good enough. Current education policy is top-down. It needs to be bottom-up. Current education is steered from afar by state and federal politicians. We need to restore local input and initiative. Existing policy mangles the meaning of standards and accountability. What is really meant by standards are additional obstacles to learning. We must remove obstacles to our children flourishing with their God-given innate desire to learn about the world around them. Accountability has come to mean central control. It undermines local initiative at the level of school board, administrator, classroom teacher, and most importantly, student. And we absolutely can't forget that having personal integrity means we set our own standards. We chart our own course, ever mindful of the good of the whole and fully responsible for our actions. With a carefully designed paraprofessional new careers program, we could reduce student-adult ratios to 15 to 1 without incur Well, you know what? There's not time. There's a lot we could do with the political will. The power of money now threatens the power of people. We were talking, the power of money now threatens the power of people. One in 100 people work for Walmart. Did you know, <laughs> Googling is a wonderful thing, did you know <laughs> that there are now almost 10 times the number of full-paid lobbyists in Washington, D.C. than there were when President Bush took office? I mean, it's, it just is what it is. You've seen the bumper sticker. I kind of like it. Invest in America. Buy a congressman. <laughs> well, guess who's doing it? <laughs> Only with an enlightened electorate will we fight for and get power to change the future. And if tomorrow's electorate is to be enlightened, they must be inspired by teachers today. Final remarks. When I asked the chair of the selection committee, who for some reason chose not to come tonight, <laughs> I asked, why me? Why was I selected? Strategically, I've actually tried to stay below the radar. So why me? He explained it was because Dr. Pearl made a very persuasive nomination since no one had really heard of me. <laughs> well, that's true. What that means 
is that University of California Santa Cruz, its alumni and staff, by recognizing me, are basically in the vanguard again and recognizing an uncountable majority of its graduates, like the chancellor was earlier referring to, who known or some in the room tonight, who known or unknown, have lived good, even great lives, have made positive impacts and been in and been agents of constructive change. They've made solid contributions to our families, communities, and country, far more profound than we will ever know. Today, UC Santa Cruz values and legitimizes all current and future graduates who understand a simple truth. If you stay below the radar, and if you don't care who gets the credit, you can pretty much accomplish anything. And I can tell you point blank, those who do the real work, those who are the real heroes, those who are the one, those are the ones who are quietly, persistently, doggedly changing the world, and they really truly are in this room with us today. I even know some of them. <laughs> and while those who are building resumes and collecting credentials and seeking the limelight and seeking the approval of powers that be, they may get glory, they may get a good chunk of glory, but in my humble opinion, they are not the leaders, they are the cheerleaders. I have no doubt that this university and this community have produced more committed and dedicated wives, husbands, mothers, fathers, professionals, paraprofessionals, leaders, mentors, and heroes to their loved ones, their professional colleagues, and their communities more than we will ever know. And it is with and behalf of them that I humbly and with great gratitude accept this recognition that you bestow upon me today. So thank you countless mentors I've had, including Roberto Rubalcava, Al Wright and George Smith, John Nisby, Elena Flores, Alan Chadwick, Alex Ibarolasa, Margaret Nichols, and of course, Art Pearl. And finally, while I confess I have no idea what I'm going to do when I grow up, I promise that you haven't seen anything yet. Thank you very much. Well, that was wonderful. Um, the bad news, of course, he's no longer under the radar, is he? Now we know who he is, and we know where to find you. <laughs> you do. So, oh, we'll share it with them. <laughs> we'll get it out there on the web. Everybody will know. Um, I thought we'd have a few minutes for some questions for Joe, given his uh, varied background, the insights, and some of the profound statements he's made tonight. Um, perhaps some questions? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Your thoughts were about Nancy Pelosi and Miller's recertification and the authorization of the NCLB. Um, particularly, why the educational community, which I'm part of and I have profoundly found, agrees with the destructive impact on education and NCLB, hasn't been heard, hasn't even really stood up to say, we, we need to redefine this. And fight against it. 
Hell, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of answers for that. I think one answer is, again, something Dr. Pearl hammered on. Without vision, the people shall perish. Students need to start constructing visions of the kind of world they need to live in. And without that, you, you have criticism, but you have no proposals for change. And so we criticize, but we don't propose here is a better way. Um, actually, Art and I had a, uh, an editorial published in our local newspaper and met with our congressman who, and, and walked him through uh, a new careers program with various ladders of paraprofessionals where under and unemployed parents actually formed the pool um, at the lowest level of that from which they then proceed to higher levels of responsibility, more pay, more training, until finally they become eligible for a credential program through the university. It went nowhere because DeFazio was too concerned about criticizing no child left behind. I don't know the answer to your question, but I think it relates to what I was discussing, citizenship, lack of democratic skills, politically organizing, and, and getting rid of the damn thing. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I find most politicians, um, I like to follow the money. I think a lot of times, no matter how liberal or progressive or whatever you want to call it, their constituents are, they're balancing things all the time, and they're not going to step out there too far. But I don't know. It's frustrating, isn't it? I guess that's it. Thank you all for coming tonight, and congratulations to You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.